and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Lisa Howarth back to the program today. Lisa and her husband, Richard, are owners of Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, one of the most beloved independent bookstores in the country. In 2014, she published her debut novel, Flying Shoes, and today we'll be talking about her second one, Summerlings, which is set in suburban Washington, D.C. during the summer of 1959. Lisa, in your previous novel, Flying Shoes, we had several points of view, but in Summerlings, our narrator is a man looking back at himself, eight years old, 1959. How did the voice of John come to you? Since the whole thing is loosely based on my growing up just over the district line in Chevy Chase, D.C., I had these little boys in mind doing the same kinds of things that we all did. I worked very hard. It was very important to me to get children's voices right, and I don't think they're easy. They're much more nuanced in so many ways than adults and so much more expressive, so few filters that they have. And I just kind of thought about these little boys that I knew. And, of course, I grew up with three little brothers, so that was part of it. And I just really got them lodged in my head. And it was really important for me to get those kids right, and I, I tried really hard on that. And in Flying Shoes, too, although it was third-person narrative, but I really tried to get those kids' voices and thoughts right. So why did you choose a boy instead of a girl? Why did you want to write across gender? Okay. And I think as a writer, you always want to challenge yourself, even if it's just a little challenge. I wanted to write first person this time, for one thing. And I wanted to write as, well, this guy, the narrator, is one of the little boys as an adult. I wanted to write from a man's point of view. I thought that would be a little more challenging. And I wanted to express a little bit the notion of sexual confusion that these little boys had and that maybe this guy grew up and became gay or not. I didn't want to spell it out. That added another dimension to the character and also presented the problem of how homophobic people were back in the Mm -hmm. 50s and how maybe it was a little bit different now. Originally, I had more commentary from the narrator, the adult narrator. The text went back and forth between him talking about the little boys and then interjecting stuff about his own life at the time. But my editors, they didn't like it. And I'm such an agreeable person. I, I did what they said. <laughs> but I remember when they're collecting butterflies, he would like to use some of their powder to put yes. on his eye as eyeshadow. And Which maybe is kind of a normal little impulse for a, a little boy. Or maybe it's just him wanting to emulate this mysterious Ukrainian neighbor that these little boys had and were all madly in love with and was very glamorous, and maybe he just had that impulse. And he also mentions later that he attempted to try to walk this sexy sort of walk that this woman, Elena, character Elena, had. They're just little hints, but maybe they came to something. Maybe they were just little boys who, you know, liked pretty girls and glamour. And, of course, today it is much more natural with all the stuff they see on TV, the wild cartoons and where sexuality is very ambiguous and everybody wears what they want and everybody does what they want. It's a far cry from Leave it to Beaver where you wore the basic striped t-shirt and the dungarees and the uniform of a 50s little boy. So So often when we read children's books, they feel so sanitized. Little boys especially can be very crass and you have let them entertain that honestly in in their dealings. 
I mean, some of the things that we said, especially the boys, they got away with a lot more. I mean, my brothers are always saying stuff that I would have gotten smacked for saying, you know, but they're boys, so they can talk that way. <laughs> my brothers were always saying the most outrageous stuff. And for that matter, my son, I've got two girls and a, a boy. My son said a lot of crazy stuff. And it's always hilarious. You know, like I said, without those filters, but there's a certain, I have to use this old dead horse, drag it across the road one more time, truthiness to the things that children say, even if they don't really know what they're talking about, they kind of strike to the core of the matter of so many things, and usually in a hilarious way. When we see fiction in movies now about the late 50s, early 60s, it's always about the stultifying conformity that's going on. But John's neighborhood in suburban D.C. is very cosmopolitan for the time. Definitely. I guess I'm just dumb, but it, it didn't really strike me until much later in life as an adult just how unusual our neighborhood was, that everybody didn't grow up with Latin American diplomats and CIA operatives and Dutch Nazi sympathizers and Austrian Jews who'd escaped, you know, old ladies in iron lungs. I mean, I don't know. I, I was like, man, I need to write about that because that stuff was not usual and I think is maybe really fascinating to some people to read about. I hope so. I think a lot of the people in the neighborhood will not be accepted by the country club, even though they're in suburban D.C. No. The little Jewish boy, Max's family is from Austria, Austrian Jews, and they're not allowed in the public swimming pool or the neighborhood swimming pool, which belongs to the Dutch general who was a Nazi sympathizer. And how the hell is he living in the United States? Anyway, and the little boys think he should have been shot or hanged by now anyway. But, you know, there are a lot of rules. There are ways to get around things, but it wasn't easy. So I went on Google Maps, and I just wanted to look at this area of Chevy Chase, Maryland. (laughs) You are so thorough. (laughs) And I looked at Cummins Lane. Don't tell. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right. Yeah, you're right. God. Because <laughs> I took the, the the Connecticut Avenue and was it Western that you'd mentioned in there? You're crazy. And That's that I, amazing. And I just looked up and I said, well, writers often do alliterative replacements. Yes. And, you know, I want I did want it to be recognizable, maybe, especially to people my age, my generation from Chevy Chase. But I, because I'd used certain things. I mean, it's all fiction, everything that happens in the book. And I changed all the people, of course. I just didn't want anybody, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings or start any trouble. So I thought I'd better change that. But that is about the only thing that I changed as far as locations and things like that. But you're a smart dude. (laughs) (laughs) But I was amazed in looking in because while it's suburban, it's definitely not a cookie cutter neighborhood. There were lots of variety in the houses that that were there. Oh my God, yeah literally variety. I mean, physically, the houses were all a combination of new houses that had just been built on the properties of the older houses that had lots of yard. And there were bungalows from, I guess, the 20s, 30s, 40s. And then there were some of the old original farmhouses that existed. So it was a real mixture, just architecturally and visually. And of course, the people pretty much the same. A real hodgepodge. Our narrator and his older sister Liz live with their grandparents, Dima and Bricky. Where are their parents at this time? 
John, the narrator's father, is kind of a, a ne'er-do-well, kind of a feckless guy. Has an allergy to work. Has an allergy to work, as his father-in-law thinks about him. They married too young, as a lot of people did then. And he's off living at Rehoboth Beach down on the ocean in Delaware with some of his old friends from GW University and old friends from St. John's and, you know, jocks and other party boys. And the mother has been sent to a sanatorium, which Liz and John, John's sister is Liz, were told is because of her TB. It's a TB sanitarium that she was sent to, and they don't get to see her very often. It's right in Washington, and she does come home. There's some calamity there when she comes home, but it's never really spelled out. Probably she was sent there because of psychological issues. I don't even know if we talked about depression in the old days. I don't know what they called it, melancholy probably or something. But she went to St. Elizabeth's. It was actually, a, um, if I'm not mistaken, a, one of the places where they started really experimenting with lobotomies and shock treatment mm. and things like that. And Well, and he serious. mentions there's a poet there. There is it's a poet a, a, Ezra there. Ezra Pound, so we know that it's probably not because of TB. Right. But John doesn't know that. Or he becomes suspicious that she's there for some other reason. And it may be because of her less than prudent relationships with certain people in the neighborhood. And I won't spoil that. But, you know, these things are, I don't really spell them out, but they're there. Definitely in that time period, women's behavior is pathologized in some way. That exactly. is, it's not pathological. Exactly. Yeah. All sorts of things. Like we were just chatting about the Milltown pills, which you and I know about and people my age know about, but was essentially the first mother's little helper pill and was prescribed for women who weren't acting right, you know, acting like 50s housewives were supposed to act. And these little boys were told that they're pills for a disease called menopause. <laughs> so that's what they think it's all about. His grandfather works for the Voice of America. He also puts together jazz tours to export American culture yeah, around the, the jazz world. Jazz ambassadors, and, right, uh, which was a real thing. It just sounds like a fabulous job to have. Right? Except we don't really know exactly what he does. And, of course, Voice of America is created. I hope I'm not getting my facts scrambled, but created as part of the U.S. Information Agency, which sort of famously became known and maybe still today is as an agency of the CIA. And we don't really know what other responsibilities he has other than putting together the jazz ambassadors and translating. He's a linguist. But there may be more serious responsibilities that he has. Some of those are hinted at along the way. But he's working at Foggy Bottom, which is the State Department. Yes, that's where it's not, not the CIA headquarters. Correct. And it was down in Foggy Bottom, not out in Langley. Like, like it, I think it was moved in the 60s maybe or not long after 1959. Now, his grandmother, Demma, enjoys shopping and Cuddy Sark. <laughs> <laughs> and Chesterfield cigarettes. <laughs> and they've had their hands full with little John because he has found a lot of different ways to get in trouble. Very typically, I think, up to a point, and then they do go kind of over the top. But they did. The grandparents, Demma and Bricky, did look after him well, and mainly they were there. Since the parents were gone, they were there to hold things together, which is a thing that still goes on, probably even more than it did then. But they also gave 
John, as the other boys' families did, a lot of freedom that kids don't have anymore. And that was another thing I really wanted to write about was what childhood was like then and what it's like now and who might be better off. But yeah, they get into a lot of trouble. Some of it was just very normal, like getting in the way of the maid and housekeeper who tries to vacuum, but also some very serious trouble that they probably don't realize just how serious and dangerous it is. Pointing to the gender divide and how behaviors are accepted, his older sister Liz is also a bit of a wild child, but she's been sent to boarding school because of it. Right, because she was trying to um, mate with boys, and she's only 12 or 13. And at least that's what Max, one of the little boys, who's a little bit older than the others, says to John, that that's why his sister was sent away, because she was trying to mate with boys. And they barely understand that concept anyway. But yeah, she's she was wild. There was control. They were sort of looking after them, but she could still run away to the boardwalk undetected when they were at the beach, and she could still run up to the youth center up on Wisconsin Avenue in the middle of the night and get away with it. So there was a lot of room to do a lot of nutty stuff. And you mentioned his friend Max, who is just a little bit older and a lot more cynical. Yeah, he's very cynical and probably because he is a little bit older. He also has an older sister who was, I think I say, something like she was the repository of all kinds of weird teenage wisdom, like things about Kotex and probably some queer issues, as we might call them now. I don't know, but she knows a lot of stuff that she imparts to Max. So he's a little more sophisticated. Things that you won't discuss in polite society. No, that's right. You can read about him in polite society, but that's up to you. <laughs> but, and he's also, it could be a lot of his cynicism is probably from coming out of this family that, you know, escaped right after Anschluss when the Germans took over or the Nazis took over Austria and his family left, leaving everything behind, just taking a quick escape route and they're poorer than everybody else. His father, much more educated than his station in life. Much more educated. was an engineer in Austria, but now is reduced to fixing people's radios and clocks and stuff like that. And he also has a mother who is something of a leftist. She doesn't feature largely in the book, but she knows Esperanto, which was a thing at the time, and gets some kind of maybe communist newspapers and very political and she's probably also been part of his cynicism, learning about cynicism and not to take things at face value the way the rest of the little boys often do. But his father, even though in his professional life he can't be adventurous scientifically, in the garden he has, he's made a special hybrid. What has he made, this Frankenstein? He is, yeah, he's Farmer Jones in the garden. He's amazing. His prize product, he grows all kinds of things. And, of course, they have to eat. A lot of what is grown just for themselves. They have a lot of eggplants that Max hates and claims they taste like fried flip-flops. But he also has managed to graft uh, watermelon and tomatoes to create watermatoes, which are these delicious little fruits that appear to be cherry tomatoes but have the delicious, crisp, sweet taste of watermelon. It's his secret formula, which Max says is he pees on the plants. But that's sort of an amazing achievement. Did you invent that creature? Or had people been doing horticultural experiments in your neighborhood? 
Oh, yeah, there were lots of gardening going on, including my, my mother and my Sicilian grandfather, Bricky. He's based on one of my grandfathers, but not the other. But my Sicilian grandfather was a big gardener. I don't think they did a lot of experimenting. I just made up water tomatoes, but it, it wouldn't have surprised me if they were creating Frankenstein vegetables all over the place. They were very inventive, all those people then. It was really interesting. They weren't just concerned with mowing their lawns and, you know, having the southern living-looking exterior to a house. Houses were messy outside, but people were doing really cool and interesting, growing all kinds of interesting stuff in my neighborhood. There was a lot less TV and cell phone action That's going correct. on. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, people just had a lot more free time in those days, so... John's best friend lives across the street, Ivan Goncharov, and his family started off in the Ukraine. Yeah, it's a fascinating family, and we're never sure, quite sure, where they're coming from politically and ideologically. Ivan's father, Joseph, is a uh, diplomat. He was ambassador to Mexico, and he's currently between assignments, although Bricky, John's grandfather, says that he lost his job or he was removed from his job because of some unpleasantness, which is never specified. So he's hanging around. He's not there all the time. He's off on mysterious trips to London or wherever. And then his sister, Elena, is the aforementioned goddess of Connors Lane, who's beautiful and seems to spend a lot of her time at parties all over Washington, at the Jockey Club and in Georgetown and at the Pan American Building. Supposedly, she works with refugees, trying to help refugees, but there are some hints that maybe there's something else going on. Joseph, Ivan's father, and Elena, his aunt, don't get along at all, and there's a lot of trouble between them, including physical violence, which the boys are just becoming aware about. So it's very hard to tell exactly what's going on. And Elena, though she's very mysterious and perhaps consorts with unsavory refugees, as Bricky says, she's sweet and wonderful in so many ways, big-hearted and attentive to the boys in a way that no other adults are. They're very attached to her, so we just don't quite know. And there is a refugee family a couple of blocks away. They came from Hungary. Yeah. And their son is a bit odd, the boys think. Yeah, poor Gellert. And he actually was based on a a little boy. You know, I pretty much nailed it with that character. He is who he is. And it was very kind of tragic. He came from Hungary. And I guess they came after the revolution the in 50, Hungary. The yeah, 56 uprising. was the revol revolution, I think. He came over and he was... We'd say today he was somewhere on the spectrum, probably autistic, and he can't speak English very well. He can't speak at all very well, and the little boys think he's kind of dumb, but they like him, and they're friends with him because he's a hell of a kickball player. But there's something going on with his family. We don't quite know what for a, a long time, but they're possibly being sent away, not allowed to stay in this country. You know, it's another one of the issues that we have today, immigration issues, that resonates, you know, from the 50s to now. I mean, I didn't, until I started doing research on some of these things, I didn't realize we were turning away refugees in those years. I thought we were, like, rescuing everybody we, we could. We refused to take a lot of Jewish refugees we, here before exactly, the Exactly. We refused to let Jews 
enter. A lot of Jews were denied entry, and that sort of shocked me. It was just another thing I discovered has been going on for 60 years in our society, in our government. And so we see the fear of refugees nowadays, especially from Islamic countries or from Latino countries. Right. And another thing that happened, you allude to back then that we have now, Khrushchev was threatening to interfere in the election to make sure Nixon would be elected. Isn't that incredible? When I discovered that, you know, I knew that obviously Cold War years, the Russians are going to figure into this novel or fear of Russians or whatever. But when I sat down and started doing the research, I was just knocked out by the amount of crazy stuff that was going on that is going on today. And to discover, and I was actually reading William Sapphire's memoirs or an article he wrote about those days. I think it was about his attendance at a home show that they held in Moscow in 1959. And Sapphire was just a young journalist who was working for an American Home Builder Association. He was over there helping promote these American homes. That was but he probably witnessed... the most grammatically correct journalist they ever had on their yeah, staff. <laughs> right. But he, he witnessed the kitchen debates and he witnessed Nixon literally poking Khrushchev in the chest or the stomach or whatever and getting very angry. And when the thing was over, Khrushchev publicly said he was going to do everything he could to see that Nixon did not win in the 1960 election coming up, which, of course, was a very close election. I guess we'll never know if he did or not. Or JFK's father. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But, you know, I was just astonished that I feel like nobody's talking about that now. Why would we question whether this was going on now when it was going on then, 60 years ago? Jeez, you know. Little boys seem to attract older boys who want to torment them. (laughs) So tell us about Slutchen. Slutchen, there was a a Slutchen-esque guy in our neighborhood. This is not entirely based on him. And of course, his scenes in Summerlings, they're fictional. I made them up. But there were some scary interactions with this guy who was a bully. He's rich and he is a few years older than the little boys. And he takes great delight in messing with them and does so whenever he gets a chance. He breaks their camera, throws it in the bush, physically tortures them with tricks like the one where you spit on your hand and you bend your arm and you rub it, ar- rub it around and make little knots and then you can't open your arm. It hurts so bad. Things like that. The boys really hate him. Also, his father is in one of the immigration offices and is apparently one of the forces trying to get rid of Gellert's family, the Hungarian family, which they, the boys discover later on. He's mean. He's evil. He's rich. He's just a jerk. And but you can kind of see in his behavior that he's been victimized himself. Oh, oh of he's, course. He's, yeah. he's been abused. And, and which is part of his purpose to wonder as a character, to make you wonder, like you also wonder about Ivan, what things has been done to this child to make this child either so fearful and timid the way Ivan is or just this kind of awful, scary bully like Slutchen. While the country has been obsessed with a potential Soviet invasion of the country, 
they let their defenses down and a different type of invasion has hit D.C. in the summer of 59. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say they let their defenses down, but they... They weren't guarding against this. They weren't ready for a plague of spiders, which occurs and is sort of the great leveler in Washington, which is a very divided culture with poor African-Americans and more well-to-do white people. But this affects everybody. It's in everybody's homes, cars, buses, offices. Bricky gets a brown recluse in his office at wherever he's working, USIA office. It's driving everybody completely insane. And of course, the speculation is, is it insect warfare by the Russians? But we never quite know that, but it sets a lot of things into motion, most notably the little boys who, like every little boy I have ever known, collects something and is obsessed with it. My brother and these little boys in our neighborhood were certainly that way. And I thought that would be fun to explore their obsession, which previously had been butterflies, but was now with the uh, plague becoming obsession with collecting spiders. So they're trying to figure out how they can do this. They realize that many of the spiders that are let loose are not native species and they're poisonous. And they're thinking, we can get those spiders and put them in Slutchin's pockets or in his bike bag or whatever, and maybe it'll kill him or hurt him or whatever. And so we think that's what the three boys are thinking. It's not exactly what all of them are thinking. One of them in particular comes up with a a scarier plan, but they have a lot of fun doing that. But, I mean, this is fairly antisocial behavior. I mean, I know it's they feel they deserve some justice because of his bullying, but... This is a dangerous plan that could get somebody killed. Yeah, but they keep kind of justifying the fact. It won't, no, they won't kill you. They'll just blind you or, or you know, you'll be paralyzed for a couple of days. So getting the wedgie and blinding. So is... they keep kind of, you know, kids, and they don't think about the ultimate danger in things. They're just thinking about what they want now and doing that. And until, of course, this one super poisonous insect is found in the Tune-In downtown, which is a place where Washington lawmakers hang out still today. I don't want to reveal too much about that. To, I don't want to spoil any plots. But, uh, you know, it's antisocial. But little boys, who can be more antisocial? I mean, they're sociopaths. They, yes, they, they do are. what they want to do and the hell with the consequences. They, or they realize the consequences too late. And it's just not little boys because there is a fourth member of their little group, and that's Beatrice Montebianco. Beatrice. Beatrice definitely kicked ass. She was the bravest of them. The smartest, probably. The smartest by far. And unfortunately for her, the boys all love her. One of them, Max, has a crush on her, so he pretends that he hates her, but he obviously is wild about her. But they like having her around because she's fun. She's tomboy She's cute. She's everything. But unfortunately for her, the options for little girls to run free like little boys in 1959 were much scanter. She has to go to catechism. She has to go to ballet. So she's always getting called away when the good stuff is happening. But she makes a big effort. She gets in on some of the the serious hijinks that they get up to, luckily for the boys, because she's so much smarter and more capable and braver. While they are little sociopaths, <laughs> they also have good hearts uh, some of the time, too. And so 
the neighborhood, even though it's cosmopolitan, seems kind of divided because you have the Shreve family from Louisiana, which seems to have outmoded ideas of race. And <laughs> and then you have the potential Nazi sympathizers of the, the Dutch family. And so the neighborhood kind of seems at odds and not unified. And so the boys hatch the beaver plan. The beaver plan is roughly based on two things. What they've read in their weekly readers about the Marshall Plan, how they interpret what the Marshall Plan is to reunite and give Europe a boost after the war, and also leave it to Beaver, where the neighborhood is beautifully harmonious, or if there's any kind of trouble, it's all taken care of pretty easily. And they're selfishly motivated by wanting to unite their own neighborhood and make the adults more friendly because they think they'll then be able to get into the Dutch family's swimming pool and they'll be able to get a ride in one of the families who they call the Wormy Chappaquas, have a little three-wheeled car called a Messerschmitt, which is made from the nose gear or the nose cone. Is it like a, a BMW Isetta or something? Or? Oh, my God, you've never seen anything like it. You, if you've never seen one, look it up. They the, were so crazy. They were like a space capsule. Because the Isettas were little three-wheel cars that had a, a front door that was on the very front. It, of the, it, and yeah. the, the, the steering wheel would come yeah. out of the door. Well, then, and, exactly. The, the, Messerschmitt, the mess, as they called it, open from the front, three wheels, just this incredible control panel, some of which didn't work. It was the nose of... Messerschmitt <laughs> fighter planes. But anyway, so they want that and they want to get in the pond lady's yard to look for spiders and to get a look at her iron lungs. So these are selfish motivations. I mean, their hearts are good. They want to have fun. So they decide to have a, um, they're going to throw a uh, fabulous family fiesta for everybody in the neighborhood and that will bring everybody together. And it does and it doesn't. It has some frightening outcomes, aftermath. They do sort of put the neighborhood on better terms, but the neighborhood, after the fabulous family fiesta, radically changes in a lot of ways, as do the lives of the boys, especially John. It's been five years since Flying Shoes came out. (laughs) So how hard was it to write this book? This book was, it was pretty easy. I mean, I started writing it in 2015, and I finished it in 2017. It takes so damn long for them to get the book out there. But I'd say it was two years. It's a short book, and it's very simple. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, Flying Shoes took me a really long time because I was not retired like I am now. I had three children at home. I was working full-time, teaching at Ole Miss and working in the library. That took me about 15 years. It took me forever, but I wasn't working on it solidly. This one I was able to sit down and pretty much work my way through. Although I was surprised, as I say, by the amount of, you know, it's a historical novel, the amount of history that I had to learn about and the amount of history that I thought I knew about but turned out to be a little off in some way. So those Because you had your own child filter when you were experiencing it. Yes, yes. This was so much of a quicker write much more fun, even though the book has darkness and tragedy in it. It was nothing like Flying Shoes, which, of course, the backstory, not the whole book, but the backstory is the true story of still unsolved mystery of my younger brother's molestation and murder. So dealing with that, even though I encased that in a wild book about 
pretty much about life in Oxford in the mid-90s. I had to think about the grimness of my brother's situation and my feelings about it and my family's feelings about it. I mean, I had to think about that for years. It was draining in a lot of ways, and uh, I did not want to do anything that was really very personal again. Of course, nothing like that has ever happened in my life, nor will it ever happen again, I hope. So anyway, that I would start and stop in that one because it would get to me. Flying shoes, which I'd be like, okay, I got to lay off for a while because it's kind of too dark and it's hurting me. And then I would go back to it. And But if there is something that ties the books together, it is that it balances humor and tragedy. Yes. I mean, I can't, I can hardly read a book or watch a movie if there's not some kind of humor in it. And I don't mean in flying shoes that we were laughing about what had happened to our brother or anything. It's just that was what our way out of the terrifying, terrible thing that had happened to us. And humor was our lifeline. I don't want to read books about people to whom terrible things happen and they wallow around in it and it's all grim and terrible and this is how destroyed we were. I want to know how people get out of those things, those situations, the terribleness of that, the pain of that. And I tried to do that with this book, even though it wasn't a personal story. Things happen to these little boys and some of them are very dark, but I still tried to let them laugh about these things, let them not quite understand the depth and the creepiness of it. So I don't know. I don't want to read anything that's not funny anymore anyway. I mean, especially now. I'm just like, we got to have some laughs. But humor, I think, God, I think it was, I'm sure I'm going to misremember this. Walker Percy, who said something to the effect that humor is a way to reach into the deepest recesses of your psyche, of a character's psyche. The best way in is humor. Because laughing is so involuntary. Yes, it is. And um, and if you can learn to do that, you're so much better off than crying in darkness. I don't know. Humor is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's why I love Southern literature and Irish literature and Russian literature. Because the worst things happen, but somehow... <laughs> the best of those writers managed to make them seem swallowable or endurable or whatever. Well, when you're living with a noose around your neck, you got to enjoy gallows humor. Right? <laughs> that's why they call it gallows humor, exactly. Is there another idea that's getting worked on right now? or I have one that I'm not willing to reveal to your listeners because it's such a fabulous idea, I'm afraid somebody will steal it and do it before I can. <laughs> but it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to be nonfiction. Anyway, so I might do that, but I also have a lot of stories. I like writing short stories, and I have a lot that... I remember you talked about maybe a children's book or two last time. I have two children's books. I didn't try very hard to publish them, but I did them. Actually, I wrote them when I was taking time off, like I just mentioned, because I was getting very depressed about working on flying shoes. I wrote these two children's books, and I'd like to also go back and get those published. And one of them in particular is about an immigrant experience that happens to be that of my a Sicilian grandfather that would be a great book to have now. For, for children to read and to 
try to understand what immigration is about and what these people are facing. And can you tell us a little bit about the 40th anniversary celebration Square Books just enjoyed down oh, in Oxford? I am so sorry you weren't there, Stephen. I'm so lazy nowadays. It, you know, I was very trepidatious. I had just come off the road from my book tour, and the day after that, Ronzo, Ron Shapiro died, our great, iconic... Unofficial king of Oxford. Exactly. And then the day, the day or two after that was the party, and I was like, oh, man, is it good? You know, is everybody going to be so... We're going to be so sad. The party's going to be really sad. And not that Ron would want it to be sad. He'd be the first one up on the dance floor. But so many people came. I think 1,200 people came. And we had the, the Soul Tones, wonderful R&B, local R&B group. The place was packed. And it was such an Oxford experience. It was young people, kids, older people. You know, just all these people, different, and you know, black people, white people, everybody was there. The whole town came out in a really wonderful way, and everybody danced. The dancing was just so wild. And I, I guess see, that's why I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess there are a couple of people who weren't dancing, but they were drinking. They had a lot to drink. Okay, I could do that. We had two bars. <laughs> the Lyric, I don't know if you've ever been to The Lyric. Yeah, I've, I've Our been to a couple of shows Lyric in there. Theater. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, been remodeled and it's such a wonderful venue. It's just a great place for a giant party. It was just a lot of fun. It was bittersweet like today coming up here to talk to you because the last time I did your show, Rom was my Memphis guide. He brought me up here and took me around and and he was such a big fan of yours cuz he drove so many riders between here and Oxford all the time and thought you did such a wonderful show, but we bittersweet, yeah. So, well, Lisa, I want to thank you so much for coming by today. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And thanks so much, Stephen. I'm so glad to be here. You do such a wonderful job. You do your homework, and you get stuff. Your show's a pleasure, and quite a few readers who've come to Oxford have said that that they appreciate you too. So, so kind of you to share that with me. Thank you. Sure. Lisa Howarth is the author of Summerlings, which is published by Doubleday. I'm Stephen Uskery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee. 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 license for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.